Now, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, David Slagle of Decatur, Georgia, uh, tells the following experience back from when you could actually go out to eat and enjoy a good meal at a nice restaurant. And here's his story. He says, I love ribs. So when I heard about a new restaurant that had amazing ribs, uh, a bunch of my friends and I drove 50 minutes to go and try it out. The place was packed and the food was great. It was all you could eat rib night. And the rib bones were piling up as fast as the line to get in. Eating ribs is a messy business. Barbecue sauce gets on your face, it gets on your fingers, it even gets on your clothes. Dirty napkins pile up next to half-eaten bowls of baked beans and coleslaw and cornbread. And when our crew had eaten all we could, Slagle said, we paid our tab and we waddled out to the car. I then reached into my pocket for my keys and came up with nothing but lint. Panicking, I looked through the window of the car to see if I'd left my keys in the ignition or perhaps had dropped them on the seat or on the floorboards of the car because he said, in the back of my mind, a more disgusting possibility was taking shape. When I saw that there were no keys in the car, I knew exactly where they had to be. These keys were important to me. They had the keys of not only my car, but they also had my house keys. They had my office keys. They had my wife's car keys. I had my locker gym key there. Uh, and only a handful of minutes earlier, those keys must have slid off my tray and followed the bones and the empty corn cobs and the napkins to the bottom of the trash can. He said, I had thrown my keys away at an all-you-can-eat rib night. And to my chagrin, the garbage can inside the restaurant had already been emptied into the dumpster. David said, as close as my friends are to me who were with me that night, they wouldn't do my dirty work for me. So what could I do? I dove into the dumpster, fishing through the bones and the beans, the barbecue sauce, the coleslaw, the cornbread, the corn cobs, and a host of saliva-soaked napkins. A slimy layer of trash coated my arms before I finally found those precious keys. As I reflect, Slagle said, on the incarnation of Christ this Christmas, I think about our dumpster-diving God, meaning no disrespect in calling God that. On the contrary, I have the greatest admiration and reverence for our infinite God who left glory, pristine, sinless heaven to search through the filth and the rubbish of this fallen world to find what was precious to him, us, humanity. As it is, Christmas is the culmination of God's amazing plan for mankind. And get this, God used imperfect people to orchestrate the perfect story. To orchestrate is to combine in a harmonious way. And that's precisely what the story of Christmas does. This is why it is the perfect story. And amazingly, it combines all the events, all of the timing in a harmonious way, and yet God uses imperfect people in that process. Now, looking back to week one in our Advent Sermon series this year called The World Needs Christmas, we learned shortly after the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden where sin entered the world that God had a plan. 
He was going to send the Messiah, a Savior who would defeat Satan. As Genesis 3.15 says in this messianic prophecy, the Messiah would be, his heel would be bruised. But the serpent, the evil one, Satan's head would be crushed. In other words, Satan would be defeated for all time. And as we can see from the start of the world, people are sinful, they're flawed, they are imperfect. Christmas was the culmination of God's plan for the defeat of Satan. Another part of the plan that we talked about in week one was the promise that God gave to Abraham two and a half millennia after the messianic promise of Genesis 15 that was passed on to Adam and Eve. Now in Genesis 12, God spoke to a man named Abram whose covenant name actually became Abraham in Genesis 18 when God ratified his agreement, his covenant with Abraham. And God told him that despite the fact that he and his wife were very old and had no children, that his descendants would become a great nation. God basically promised Abraham that he would become well-known and that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. Now, this probably didn't make a lot of sense to Abraham on a number of fronts. Number one, because he and his wife were childless, his wife had been barren, they were seemingly beyond ch- uh, you know, childbearing age. How is this going to work? The second thing that probably didn't make sense either is that there weren't really nations back then. There were mostly tribes. And one thing tribes generally didn't do was bless one another. They often competed for hunting grounds or grazing lands or water rights. Tribes even stole from one another and from time to time warred as well. So this probably didn't make a whole lot of sense to Abraham. And even when things did get into motion and Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac, Abraham didn't always cooperate with God's plan. He lied. He was selfish. He was impatient. He sometimes treated people poorly, including his servant Hagar and his wife Sarah. But it's as if God decided to bless the people of the earth through Abraham, despite Abraham. Isn't that something? God used imperfect, unbelieving, misbehaving people all along the way as he moved history toward the birth of Christ. In fact, every single person God used in the Bible was flawed and had an imperfect faith. God used imperfect people to orchestrate the perfect story. God is still doing that today. You know, we're presently living in an era of American history where it's known as kind of a revisionist history, where modern-day people, based upon 21st century ideals, values, biases, political leanings, including political correctness, censorship, heightened social consciousness, etc., from this vantage point, they're trying to rewrite U.S. history. For example, there's a project called the 1619 Project, which projects that all America is basically corrupt. Its governance, its political systems, its culture, its judicial system, including law enforcement, its churches, etc. And the notion is that it's all biased, it's all classist, it's all racist, it's all sexist, etc. And the reason for these systemic problems and the need for revisionist history is because the first slaves were brought to this nation 
in 1619. The founding of our nation wasn't really 1776. It was 1619 because everyone, including the First Nations peoples, African Americans, women, and numerous other immigrant populations were not all afforded the opportunity for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as we claim America is all about. They claim 1619 is a more accurate picture of what we have been histor- seen historically in America than 1776 truly is. Now, yes, America has plenty of horrible sins to own up to, including most significantly the enslavement of Africans for 250 years and the genocide of Native American peoples. There are also the sins of the Ku Klux Klan and pockets of white supremacy, and Jim Crow laws, and segregation, and the raping and pillaging of our land for precious minerals, and and in the same time, the polluting of our land to the nth degree. Not to mention the horrific problems of violence perpetrated against many people groups in our land, as well as a drug culture that's second to none in this world. And I could go on and on, but you get the point. America has problems. It always has. And Christians have also haven't helped their cause along the way because they're so adamant in saying that this is a Christian nation. We're a Christian nation. Okay, if we want to claim that we're a Christian nation, then we have to be willing to name and claim all of these sins I've just listed and more. Yes, many Christians did try to justify slavery. Do you know there were soldiers on both sides of the Civil War who were praying to the same God, who were singing the same hymns, were reading from the exact same Bible and the same translation even of the Bible? We also have to be able to to name and claim the 15th century doctrine of discovery which came through the church and gave the right to conquer peoples anywhere in the world, to dehumanize them, colonize them, enslave them, etc. And then there's manifest destiny, which swept across our country in the 18th century, that it was perfectly fine to go westward and to conquer and to take all the lands you want. And it was a divine thing to expand territorial expansion. No matter what people groups were misplaced or, or, or sent off to boarding schools or placed on reservations or whatever, we have to own and name and claim all that because we're a Christian nation. And then we have to learn to dance around history. Yes, some people came to America for religious reasons, the freedom to worship and to escape the hand of oppressive persecution for their faith at the hands of European nations. Yes, Christian values did influence many things in our nation's founding, from our constitution and our judicial system. But you know, there were plenty of other influences as well. There were signees of the constitution who were pantheists. They worshiped the rocks and the trees. There were signers of the constitution who were basically docetists. They believed that they had a higher, enlightened, more intellectual knowledge of God than other people did. There were also people who signed the Constitution who were Masons and those that were agnostics and some who were slave owners. And one signer of the Constitution was a horrendous womanizer. Now, not everyone who came to America came for the Christian faith. In seminary, they taught us that people came to America for three reasons. Some came for God. 
Some came for greed, and some came for glory. The three, the three G's, God, greed, and glory. And guess what? We see all three of those things throughout the history of our nation. And all three of those things are still alive and well today. We are an imperfect nation, full of imperfect people. And yet, despite that, God has done great things through our nation. We are the longest surviving republic in the world. We're the most generous nation by far on the planet in resources, knowledge, charity, and even the giving of our own citizens' lives for the betterment of other peoples and other nations. People in this nation have also sent out more missionaries, more resources, and more life-saving services and technology for the advancement of the gospel than any people in the history of the world. We've ended slavery in our land and are working hard to end sex trafficking and domestic abuse. Sex trafficking is another form of slavery, by the way. We have advanced the civil rights uh, so significantly that it opens doors to people willing to go through them to better their lives. And we've done this to the point where the very worst thing that a person or a corporation in this country can be called is a racist. And corporations will spend hundreds of millions of dollars to prove that they're not a racist organization. There's plenty of evidence out there to back up the statement I just made. It's also become inappropriate to be numbered among the misogynists and the sexists and the homophobes and those who are against the disabled and against the poor and the homeless and the mentally unhealthy. Yes, we are an imperfect nation made up of imperfect people, yet somehow God has been able to bring good, a lot of good, out of this country despite us. You know, the most famous version of the Christmas account appears in Luke's gospel. And Luke was an excellent writer. He was a physician whose viewpoints reflect his Greek background. The gospel is characterized also by its joyful tone, which was wonderful that we sang songs today about joy because it provides many details for us of human interests and human interactions, especially Jesus' concern for the poor, the sick, as well as women and children. Luke was a first century Christian who sometimes traveled with the Apostle Paul as Paul was planting churches around the northeastern Mediterranean rim. And he became a Christian later in life. But he, so he didn't really uh, follow uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, perhaps that closely. But he did, after he came to Christ, interact with Jesus' family. Uh, he interacted with many of Jesus' friends and disciples and followers. And of course, he spent a, a fair amount of time with the Apostle Paul in order to write, as he says, an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Interestingly, Luke's gospel doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It doesn't even begin with the betrothal of Joseph and Mary. It begins with the account of a Jewish priest named Zechariah, whose name means Yahweh remembers. The Lord remembers. In other words, God's saying right away in this gospel that I've not forgotten the promises that I have made to my people many thousands of years ago. See, Zechariah was one of approximately 18,000 priests who lived in Israel and were divided into groups to serve at the temple. 
They kept the temple running for daily sacrifices, daily prayers, the burning of incense at the appropriate morning, noon, and evening hours. And including the three major festivals, which Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles included, and then the daily worship temple rituals, a priest could expect in Israel to serve in the temple in Jerusalem for two weeks every year. Now, against all odds, after choosing lots, which the priests did that were on duty, uh, Zechariah was the chosen one to offer incense in the holy place and to pray for the nation of Israel. Now, this was a high honor and was permitted to a priest only once in their lifetime. Many priests never had the opportunity to ever do what Zechariah is going to do in this text. Now, in a small way, I kind of understand this a little bit, because six years ago, I was given the opportunity to preach at our denominational annual meeting on their Thursday, it's a four-day meeting, in their Thursday's morning devotions. I was uh, selected to be able to speak uh, at that. And there's 4,000 plus covenant ministers, plus a speaker's pool that they draw from of thousands of other uh, evangelical leaders and speakers. So uh, it was the once in a lifetime opportunity for me. Well, Zechariah was facing three times the numbers I've just described for you. So he gets selected. And this is the best day of Zechariah's priestly and professional life. This was also not a coincidence. God's plan is in motion. Zechariah, the Lord remembers. So when Zechariah is inside the temple, something amazing happens. Listen to what Luke 1, 5 to 15 has to say. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at his right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are just like Abraham and Sarah. They're old and barren and never able to have children. Verses 16 through 20. He will bring, you, bring back many of, of the people of Israel to the Lord, and he will go on before the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their parents to their children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom and the righteousness, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you the good news. And now you will be silent 
and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah loses his ability to speak and doesn't say another word until after Elizabeth has given birth. Look at verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had been seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among my people. Now jump ahead to verse 57 here. Flip the page. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. You see, even Zechariah was an imperfect person. He doubted God and spent 10 months being unable to speak because of his unbelief. See, God uses imperfect people to orchestrate the perfect story. God is fulfilling his promise. He remembers, and as we're going to see, he fulfills his word, which brings us now to the second pregnancy story in Luke's gospel, one that Pastor Kerry read for us, and I'm going to read just through verse 37 of chapter 1. Verse 26 through 37. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. When Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Now, part of Mary's response is found 
in the song that's known as Mary's Magnificant here in Luke chapter 1 and verses 46 through 55. But I want to read for you just verses 46 through 49. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. This sounds kind of grandiose, doesn't it? Uh, Perhaps even arrogant. But Mary was exactly right. 2,000 years later, people all over the world know her name. And they consider her blessed of God. And Mary's response was spot on. It was based upon her ability to understand God's plan. It was founded on her confidence in the source of this information. That's why she said what she said in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. See, Christmas is the culmination of God's amazing plan for humanity. In it, we are reminded that God is going to fulfill His Word, even if it means using imperfect people to orchestrate the perfect story. And guess what? Plenty of imperfect people still exist today. I must say, because of our present cultural climate, with the COVID lockdowns, the political tensions, and all the social unrest going on in our society, I must say that I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime where people are turning on each other like they are right now. And I think certainly social media uh, has contributed to this in a big way. But the level of anger, the level of animosity and angst and tension between people, even Christian people, is anything but loving your neighbor. It's anything but loving your enemy. And it's anything but they will know you are my disciples because you have love for one another. You know, as a pastor, I have a front row seat in this. Seeing Christian people coming across with the notion that you're going to know I'm a Christian because of my political views. You're going to know I'm a Christian because of all of the harsh things that I post on social media. You're going to know that I'm a Christian because of my COVID-19 pandemic views. You know, I've watched two Christian people who've been lifelong best friends, literally at each other's throats to the point where they had to patch things up because they're complete polar opposites on these things. I'm watching people promote the notion that you will know that I'm a Christian because of my social views. Or you will know I'm a Christian because of my views of history. Or one that really blows me away is you'll know that I'm a Christian Because of my paranoia, my anxiety, and my fearful views. And I could go on and on and on, but let me indulge you with just one more story. One of my daughters happens to be an HR coordinator 
for a company that has about 150 employees, and she is under tremendous stress right now because of all of the government mandates with COVID. And if this person gets exposed, they have to be taken off the assembly line. And this person, and managing all of that, yet trying to keep their company afloat, and their inventory is gone because people are still buying out what they produce, but they can't keep up because of COVID. And then she tells me, you know, she calls me from time to time to distress because she receives criticism on a daily basis. She receives, you know, little sarcastic comments and the, the backdoor maneuvers and all of this. So she calls me on a regular basis. In fact, she called me twice this week. And you know what I found so fascinating is I could finish her sentences. And she could finish my sentences. And when she tell a story, I knew exactly where the story was going. And when I told a story, she knew exactly where the story was going. What struck me is that secular, unbelieving, even some of their employees aren't the best educated people in the world that she's having to deal with, and they're acting exactly the same way as the Christian people that I'm dealing with on a daily basis. Through COVID, through political tensions, and social unrest, we see so many Christians acting just like the rest of the world. But do you know what comforts me as I try to pastor and shepherd people during these trying times? Is to know that God uses imperfect people like me and like you to accomplish His will in this world. Every single Christmas we are reminded that God is going to fulfill His word. He's going to do it despite our doubts, despite our weaknesses, and despite our second guessing, and despite our personal sin. Why? Because God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God loves us when we don't behave. He loves us until we do behave. He loves us even if we never learn to behave. He loves us when we don't believe. He loves us until we do believe. And he will even continue to love us if we never learn to believe. This is why we need Christmas. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, today again, we thank you for the opportunity to talk on this fourth Sunday of Advent about the birth of our Savior, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who came to save his people, from their sins. God, our sins are many. Our sins as a nation are many. We have much to own, much to claim, and much need for humility in our lives. God, I pray against this, uh, this anger and tension and COVID fatigue and all the things that are impacting and infecting people's lives right now. And I pray that our, your people, your children, will consider very carefully what they say and what they post, how they act. So God, that we can be known as 
your disciples, your followers, known as people of love who love their neighbors, even love their enemies, because that's what you do, God, to us when we don't deserve it, even if we never believe or behave the way you want us to. God, your love for us is so great. And God, that's the perfect story, the Christmas story. Thank you for it. And God, we ask for your Holy Spirit's power to follow you, uh, and thank you for your grace in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.